You know, the challenge of fixing any culture is winning the debate, is winning the argument. And so, look, some of the things that I suggest to people are about reducing the amount of email, uh, the amount of meetings you've got, or the changing the way that your uh, that your meetings work, or just trying to to re-energize your approach to things. Um, not emailing at the weekends. Pretty straightforward interventions, but things where sometimes you're going to need a conversation with your boss. You're going to need a conversation with someone to to make it happen. So um, it's about those things are normally won. Those things are can can take place if you um, if you've got evidence there. They're not going to happen if you're just going on uh, sort of. If you turn up with a, an opinion, it's it's unlikely to have an impact. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uhedetsky. And it's a great pleasure of mine to welcome again our returning guest, Bruce Daisley. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning. Hello. Thanks, to have, thanks for having me. Uh, well, I'm absolutely thrilled to, to have you back. And the occasion is the book that you wrote that has come out recently on, on hardback and audiobook. And I think in January it will come out in paperback. The book is called The Joy of Work. 30 Ways to Fix Your Work Culture and Fall in Love with Your Job Again. And just as a brief introduction, so Bruce is a VP for the ML region at Twitter. He's based in the UK. And also he is the host of the UK's number one podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And some of his work uh, exploring this new world of work and how to make work suck less, led also to the New Work Manifesto that we also discussed in our previous episode. And if you're lucky enough, uh, having heard Bruce give a talk live, you realize that this is a man on a mission uh, about to change the world of work. So that's where we really connect, I think. And so maybe before we go more into the book, would you mind telling listeners a little bit on how you went from hosting the podcast and then working on this new work manifesto to actually putting it into a book, summarizing really these these ideas and things you've learned into this book. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, I started from the perspective of being someone who, in my day job, was interested when, when there were good cultures, when, when there was just a good environment, really. And so that might have been teams that I worked in. It might have been teams in proper jobs, or it might have been teams in restaurants I worked in or bars I worked in. I was always interested how some environments were more enjoyable than others. So I think that was my first instinct. Then when I, I started doing a podcast on it, largely as a process of self-education, to try and inform myself um, what the secrets of, of good workplaces were. And I, I, I felt there, were, there must be answers, but I felt that... Um, there weren't really any evidence being offered to me of, of what the answers were. So um, I started sort of chatting to people, doing research, and I was just astonished to discover that there was loads of evidence about how to make work better. But a lot of the people who have day jobs, like all of us, don't hear this evidence. So we don't hear about 
um, the, some of the psychology research, some of the 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 organisational behaviour research, and so you know it became sort of my mission. I was I was like you mentioned there. I was I was baffled why there was so little uh, evidence being used, and so it became my mission to try and bring some of that evidence to people in jobs. And I mean, the the this year, this two thousand eighteen, um, your book coming out has reminded me of another book that came out earlier, which is by Neil Usher, which is the Elemental Workplace. Um, he lists, you know, the twelve elements of the physical workplace. And when we had him on the podcast, he said, of course, something very similar to you. His drive was the same. And he said, there are so many new people coming into this field, this which was maybe before left to only HR people. Um, and he also felt that there was nothing quite accessible and simple and and almost like an IKEA, you know, assembly <laughs> guide for 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 people who haven't gone to university, studied HR, but who have drifted into these jobs. And and I I, I kind of think that that's a little bit similar to to you to channel all this very high level knowledge available in peer reviewed journals, but to package it in a very practical, uh, user friendly way. Yeah, that's exactly that was exactly my intention. And the truth is, as well, um, I'm not convinced that people um, that people complete books, that they don't read books. And so then I thought, okay, so if people don't finish books, then what's the way that I can make this be accessible enough that maybe you only read one chapter, and you read the chapter, and you 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 say to yourself, you know what, I, I tried that out, and it worked. And so therefore, I thought. By packaging it as 30 things that people can do, um, I thought it was far more likely that people would do one of them, try it out. So, so look, yeah, that's it. The, the whole intention, really. I think it's, it's important to, probably for me to say who the book's for. The book isn't for bosses. It isn't for CEOs. It isn't for MDs. They don't read books like this. This is for one passionate person in a team who maybe looks at the way their team is working and thinks, you know what? this this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. And so um, so it's, it's aimed for a passionate person who maybe feels a bit powerless in their organization. They want to change things, but they don't know how. And so I'm hoping by reading this, people will say, oh, wow, actually, that was that was immensely helpful. It, it helped me um, improve my work. You know, this, the, the way that the book's set out is that these there's 12 ways to make you enjoy your own job more personally. And then these, uh, these eight ways to sort of build sync in your team, to build a stronger team culture. And then these uh, 10 ways to improve your company culture. So, and in each of, each of these suggestions, each of the interventions is based on evidence. So, you know, someone might be sitting there going, you know what, this team doesn't feel like they're talking honestly with each other, or this team doesn't feel like they're very creative or collaborative. And for each of those things, there's an intervention that you can do. I mean, this is something that we also come across quite often, even if there is senior leadership buy-in into, you know, giving people more work-life balance or trying to change the culture or building more trust. Um, the further down you go in, in, the, in the food chain, if you will, especially line manager, hiring managers, 
that's when it gets really tricky. And and we've seen also, you know, in organizations that there is a, a kind of a lone warrior HR manager or even someone from marketing or sales who says we can do better than this, but they often lack um, tools, but often also kind of fizzle out, right? Because if there's a big resistance to some of these changes, then these poor lone warriors will not not make it make it um, really happen. So in your book, do you also empower people on how to communicate or how to get others on board? Yeah, exactly that. So I think, you know, the truth is that the most important part of all of this is using evidence, using uh, research and evidence. And so, you know, generally bosses, look, bosses have got a motivation of trying to make the the company work better, the team work better. So, you know, my contention is that a, a boss can be persuaded, a boss can be sort of won over, but probably you need a bit of proof, a bit of evidence to, to do that. But yeah, absolutely. You know, the challenge of fixing any culture is winning the debate, is winning the argument. And so, look, some of the things that I suggest to people are um, about reducing the amount of email, uh, the amount of meetings you've got or the changing the way that your uh, that your meetings work or just trying to to re-energize your approach to things, um, not emailing at the weekends. Actually, sort of pretty straightforward interventions but things where sometimes you're going to need a conversation with your boss. You're going to need a conversation with someone to, to make it happen. So um, it's about those things are normally one. Those things are, uh, can, can take place if, you, um, if you've got evidence there. They're not going to happen if you're just going on uh, sort of, you know, if, if you turn up with a, an opinion, it's, it's unlikely to have an impact. Yeah, exactly. And, and you need the you, you need to convincing arguments. Exactly. But also, um, I've heard you say this about this book in, in some other podcasts, but I also know from your talks and, and the book that, I mean, the, the point here is to change, uh, I don't know, 60, 70 years of, or maybe just 30 of this scientific management um, practices. And some of the strategies may be quite counterintuitive or very different from the practice today, you know, about working fewer hours or not emailing on the weekend. You know, finally we got email and now you're telling us, Bruce, not to use it or, you know, reducing meetings, whereas we want to be a collaborative workplace. So, so which of these strategies do you think may be quite surprising or counterintuitive, but yet very, very effective for this 2019 type of, of work environment. Yes. Yeah, so so um, in the book, I talk at sort of great length about why we, a lot of us feel like we're not getting anything done in our jobs. We feel like we're not making, uh, <laughs> we're not getting, you know, we, we feel like we're constantly in a battle between emails and meetings. So the average person does uh, somewhere in the region of 140 emails a day and they have about um, 16 hours of meetings a week. So, you know, this, this whole load of things that are barriers, that are blocks in, in preventing you from, from getting on with your job. And in fact, when you, when you do research into when people say that they've got a satisfying job, it's when they feel like they're making progress in something. So, you know, we all recognize that. Um, sort of when we, when we have a good day at work, we'll, we'll get something, you know, it, it's when we've got something done. 
And I think, you know, so so my contention is we need to find a way to reduce the amount of time we spend in meetings. But uh, weirdly, along the way, so albeit that I contend that, along the way, I, I have discovered that a lot of the most effective companies, the most effective team cultures have a weekly social meeting. So this feels like um, this feels like a sort of uh, yeah, contradiction, you know, like I'm, I'm saying, you know, get rid of half of all your meetings and then spend uh, one meeting every week where you actually don't accomplish anything. And it's the reason why is that when you look into the science of this, when you look into the evidence of this, people spending time getting in sync with each other, be people sort of synchronizing with each other. It has a very powerful effect on the, their sense of collaboration, often their creativity. Um, and, you know, I was just really struck. I encountered so many organizations that had reached the same conclusion. So um, there was a very famous British businesswoman called Margaret Hefner. And she's been a CEO of five different businesses, uh, incredibly successful, went on to be a, a BBC commentator. And uh, she found that one of her organizations that she was in, she said it just didn't have any buzz. It didn't have any hum in the office. It, it sort of seemed like people were it, it was sort of very tactical. People were doing their jobs, but they weren't interacting with each other as human beings. And as a result of that, it was affecting the teamwork. It was meaning that they were not really collaborating in any deep sense. There was no sense of trust. And so she introduced this social meeting and she said, it was deeply awkward. It was it was very uncomfortable. The first few we had were excruciating. But she said over time, it resulted in the team having a greater sense of uh, collaboration. She said, I mean, she, she gave one piece of evidence where she stood up at a conference and said it was absolutely transformational for the organization. And she said, weirdly, um, someone in the audience stood up and said, I worked at that company at the time and I can... And I can contest that it was absolutely transformational. The company, the fortune of the company, completely transformed by us having this social meeting. Right, really interesting. And so I go into the science of why it works, and I go into the science, the evidence, the sort of the multiple people who've done research into it. And so I think you know that's one of these examples where you might get. Uh, a few chapters into the book and say, oh, this guy hates meetings. And then further down in the book, you go, oh, I don't, I, I'm surprised. He he seems to like some meetings. And it's exactly right. You know, uh, w when you look at the science of meetings, there's a wonderful science scientist that I referred to several times, a guy called Alex Pentland from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And, um, and his work, he looks at, um, he actually uses very clever devices to track what people do in, in offices, and then overlays the, the productivity of the office. So, so he overlays sort of what people are getting done. And he says meetings account for about 2% of office productivity. Um, so, you know, really interesting sort of meetings are not generally uh, very productive and, and very, uh, very useful in our day-to-day -day life. However, if you get the right sort of meeting, it can be very powerful at building sync, uh, building bonds between people. Absolutely, and I, and I wanted to ask you um, something that has been on my mind for you know ever since starting this kind of work is that um, somehow we have overlaid ancient work organization or work design 
principles, the nine to five presenteeism uh, kind of things with these new technologies or new tools and without really asking, you know, what get what needs to get done here? What what is it that people have to do? And and I find that um, meetings and, and emails, um, reports, a lot of papers, they also contribute to a type of pseudo work, which is not really work, but looks like work. And and, and it, it also enables quite a few people to navigate the, in the organization without really doing much. Um, and so you have a lot of these kind of dead wood around also who, you know, to whom this is very suitable. This kind of looks like work, but it's not really work. And some of them may be pushing, you know, more meetings on others to kind of keep up this um, this kind of pretense or, or, or this, the, the visuals of, of work without any substance. Exactly right. Exactly right. Work about work. And so, you know, effectively, we're in a situation where a lot of us might might find that we can go all day, we can go all day and, you know, you've done emails, you've done meetings and, and you might question yourself and say, what have I actually done today? You know, emails, just a very, very slow means of communication, right? You know, like all of us can speak quicker than we can email. And so consequently, um, you know, th- these, these sort of big, these big questions about what modern work actually is. And I think that the more that you boil that down and you say, and you say to yourself, you know, what are we trying to get done here? Then actually meetings are in sort of service of, of distracting us from that. They, they're preventing us from doing that. There was a really interesting thing that I was, I was quite taken with that the, um, the organization McKinsey said that, uh, McKinsey, McKinsey sort of did some work and they said that the average person spends about 40, 42, 45% of their time doing emails. And, uh, and I think you can recognize that, but that's two days a week doing emails. And when you think about it, um, it's sort of a, a really, an obvious amount, but it's, it seemed to co- correlate with a stat that I heard a, an anthropologist, Robin Dunbar, uh, give Robin Dunbar said that um, he's very famous for coming up with something called Dunbar's number, and Dunbar's number is this is this concept that he identified that the cerebral neocortex in the brain, so the, so, so just a, an important part of processing in the brain. He said um, the cerebral neocortex can only trust 150 people, so. You know, humans have only got a capacity to trust 150 people. And so he said that, you know, in, in times gone by, that would determine how many people were in tribes or it would it would determine how many people were in sort of uh, groups of organi- of humans. You know, if, if you reached 150 people, generally the group would split and uh, you'd, you'd sort of have you'd have a, a two smaller groups. But he said, we can get up to that 150 people. But when you get up to 150 people, you spend about 45% of your time in what he called social grooming. And it really struck me that the, uh, the parallels between those two numbers, you know, we spend, we spend 45% of our time doing emails and 45% of our time is what you need to, to do social grooming. And it's almost like email has become... Uh, rather than the job itself, email has just become this social grooming. It's just a, a way to stay connected to a bigger group. 
Um, so that's it, you know, sort of for me, once we've recognised that, we then need to we then need to sort of strip it back and start looking at, at these things and saying, OK, uh, is are we actually doing email rather than doing our jobs? Absolutely. But it's also a lot on the shoulders of of direct supervisors or line managers. I mean, listeners to the podcast may think that I have some sort of obsession with line managers. Um, but to be able to formulate and support your staff in either telling them what needs to get done or asking them what should get done, right? It's, it's we're almost caught up in this, um, you know, whatever comes up at the last minute gets to be the priority and it's just piling up and, and firefighting without sometimes taking the time to think, okay, what is it that is totally redundant? What it's, it's, a, it's quite a big responsibility, right? To say, well, hold on a second, let's pause everything here and let's say, you know, what does your role actually involve and, and what are you good at and what you should be doing? Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. So, um, look, you know, and I think the, the truth is that we should, we should be spending more time um, thinking about what work is and, and, and look, just what's the most effective way we can get this done? And, you know, in, in truth, I don't think we spend enough time asking those questions. So, um, you know, so, so that, that was my objective here. Look, you know, the truth about work is this, is that people who have jobs are more happy than people who don't have jobs. They, they live longer, they get less illnesses. You know, work is a really important part of our identity and the, the way we sort of, we conduct ourselves in the world. So, you know, you know I, I want to make sure that we, we're almost unashamed to say that we enjoy work. You know, work is an incredibly, uh, an incredibly sort of important part, thing for us. We're almost, but we're almost ashamed at times to admit enjoying it. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the important facts to bear in mind are that half of all workers now report feeling burnt out. Um, people are finding that their, their jobs are expecting them to work longer and harder. Stress levels are at record levels. And so, okay, so we know that in essence, we like having a job, but we know that the way that we've calibrated modern jobs is there's something wrong with it right now. And so therefore we need to, um, we, we need to, to get those things balanced really and, and trying to, to, um, to improve the way we're working, I think. Let me ask you another devil's advocate question, if I may. Go on. Can, can any workplace be helped? Yeah, I really think it can, you know. The thing that I've been interested in, there's a, a wonderful, um, she's, she works at, well, she used to work at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but she was an operations manager. And she spent time looking at uh, retail stores, at supermarkets, because she was convinced. Well, actually, she didn't start with a hypothesis. She, she, um, she started just trying to, to look at the, the profitability of different organizations. And what she found was that the, the organizations that had a good culture, that treated their workers well, that had, um, that had a good uh, remuneration package for workers, she found that those organizations, rather than, um, rather than sort of being less profitable, they were more profitable. So she, she called this the good job strategy. She said that when you create good jobs, actually it becomes a competitive advantage and it benefits the whole organization. And so having identified that, she said 
Okay, so she then became intent on saying, okay, so these retail jobs, which quite often, you know, we hear about uh, zero hours contracts in the UK we talk about, or, you know, quite often we expect these to be bad jobs. We expect them to be sort of low quality jobs. And in fact, the truth of it is that um, that quite often we, uh, we 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 see that the when when companies do these things well, they can be an advantage. So absolutely, I think you know the thing for me that's really heartening is that you can create good jobs for people, and that any job can be made better. That's fantastic, um, and I, and actually just uh, resonating a little bit with what you just said, I actually read quite recently somebody admonishing parents. You know, to say you shouldn't tell your kids, well, if you don't go to school, if you're not, your grades are not good, if you don't finish school, you'll end up working in a cafe or you will end up being a bin man or you end up being yeah. a postman. And and I think that that's a collective um, snobbism that we have about knowledge economy and then kind of maybe looking down on, on some of these blue collar jobs. Whereas, you know, if you work in a cafe and, and you're, interacting with great customers you have a good team and you you just prepare you know the best coffee in town you you switch off your the coffee machine at i don't know six seven eight and you go home and and i guess you know resonating with what lotte Balin says people working in these environments are not going to tend to really dwell upon whereas in the knowledge economy in academia in research people just even find it very difficult to shut off their brains um, and being present with their families. If, if you're not on your phone, then even your inner kind of voice still goes on in your head while you're, you know, solving some other, you know, big world uh, work problems. So I think that there's also a little bit this, right, to, to address a little bit the balance and understanding of where happiness and joy in work can come from. Exactly, exactly. This, um, I, th- I think you, you raise a really important point, you know, that the, the ability in some jobs to switch off at the end of the day and sort of and to walk away from work is increasingly, increasingly elusive for a lot of us. You know, we find since the um, since the arrival of email on mobile phones, the average person is working an extra two hours a day. And and it, whereas before before we had um electronic emails on our phones and we we could access it anywhere people were at least able to step away from their jobs and and you know have some have some headspace i think you know the challenge increasingly is that a lot of us don't have that ability to switch off and it's why jobs like cafes or or jobs that are, are more physical can feel more appealing at times because these are these a greater separation between work-life balance Look, I think the, the, the critical thing is that we, we need to be having these discussions. The, there was a, a wonderful piece of work by a woman called Alexandra Michelle, who studied investment bankers. And she looked at them and she found that, you know, the practice in investment banking. So investment bankers can earn a million euros, a million pounds a year. <clears throat> and uh, and so, you know, the, so when they start, they you go through a sort of a, a ritual uh, where everyone works about 100 hours, 120 hours a week. It's uh, sort of about 15, 16 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. And um, 
And it's really established. She spent ages looking at it. She looked at this pattern. And what she found was that that's long established. And look, you know, it's, it's deeply unproductive, but they do it as part of a rites of passage. If you don't work that hard, then you're considered to be sort of not deserving and, and, and not wanting to, to ascend. What she found, though, was that since the arrival of mobile phones, the, the uh, work that had been ridiculous and excessive had become intolerable. People were, were leaving the office for seven hours a day, but they were staying connected to the office on their phones. And so the, the, when they previously left, they were having seven hours a day where they were going home and sleeping and resting. Now they were going home and, uh, and staying connected on their phones. And they were collapsing. They were having breakdowns. They were, they were getting extremely ill. And, uh, and so just really interesting, I think, um, that, you know, the, the mobile phone has pushed us over the edge. And we need to have a discussion about that. Do we need to be connected all the time? What's the best way to balance this? What's the best way for us to manage this, really? I, I have uh, read or heard about a, a similar experiment that was with law firms, you know, another notoriously long hour culture sector, where um, managers said, okay, we're going to e install a one day go home on time day. I think it was Thursday or Friday when they said to the, the lawyers and partners, okay, go home at seven in the evening. And the first day they did it, nobody went home because yeah. they felt it was a trap to assess who is driven and who is slacking off. So it has to be embedded in the whole culture some of these initiatives, you know, as you said about, you know, the one about socializing, the one about taking breaks. We have to now unlearn so much bad habits. Absolutely. And, 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 and really, uh, you know, come away from these stigma and unconscious bias that if I, if I take more time to think, if I take more lunch breaks, if I, and I know you speak about laughter in the book, then that's going to harm my career. Uh, I'm going to be frowned upon. So I think the, the, you know, the task is really carved out for people who buy your book and, and want to do it. Um, yeah. But it needs persistence, right? It's, it's really over time that these strategies will bear fruit. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. I think, you know, uh, th that's it. To, to try and give uh, a series of strategies to people and a, a series of inter interventions to, to help them. And like you say, you know, um, the importance of laughter, I thought, was really interesting. The, the interesting thing about laughter is that these, um, there's not a lot of research into laughter. In fact, you know, I think one professor said to me that these, um, these 70,000 academic papers um, exploring anxiety and stress and about 20 exploring laughter. And it's, and it's largely because scientists sort of get a bit apologetic about it. They, 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 they worry that it might be frivolous. Or not serious, um, no, from a research perspective. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, it's really interesting. So I, I was really interested in laughter, largely because some of the best teams that I've been in personally have, have laughed a lot. So I wanted to know, does laughter perform a role? Does it perform a role in team bonding? Is it actually, is it, is it a waste of time? Should we, should we not be laughing? And what you find is that laughter is incredibly powerful as a um, as a bonding ritual. You know, the the probably the leading expert on laughter is a guy called Robert Provine, Professor Robert Provine, and he he describes laughter. He says when you look at laughter, 
first thing is, is laughter is a signal to others. It's not necessarily for ourselves. Um, so we laugh more when we're around other people. He said, we don't always laugh when something is um, hilariously funny. In fact, in most instances that he observed people laughing in a, an office, um, he said it wasn't particularly funny. You know, people would say, well, your turn next. Uh, well, after you, uh, let's ask John on that one. And they'd laugh. And so he found that really interesting because people were, were laughing for... Um, like a nervous laughter. Well, well it's sort of, he called it a sort of a, 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 a bonding thing. He said, effectively, laughter, the way he described it is that he said, laughter is a sonically impoverished human bird song. You know, like it's, we, we laugh to connect with other people. And, uh, and that's really interesting. So, so then he, he says, so once you've established that laughter is about connection, laughter is about trust, let's see what it does. And, it, you know, it produces greater teamwork, it produces greater collaboration. So people who um, try to get rid of laughter in their office um, are, are maybe sort of reducing the sense of team cooperation, reducing the sense of of, of teamwork together so that wow so that's uh, that's really interesting and and what could we do you also find that laughter stimulates our creativity people who laugh tend to come up with more ideas in in ideas generating tests and um also laughter is very effective at reducing the stress in the situation when you look at people who've survived um disasters so there's a, a great book uh, there's a great series of books, really, by a guy called Lawrence Gonzalez, and he's written about the survival instinct. Who are the people who, when a plane crashes, who are the people who make it to a, you know, who make it through the Peruvian jungle and make it to a city three months later? Who are the people who um, are lost at sea? Their boat's lost at sea, but they they make it to they make it to somewhere six months later. You know, who are the people who survive? And almost without exception, the people who survive, one of the first characteristics of them is that every day they laughed at how ridiculous their situation was. So they weren't the people who sort of seriously focused on, I must survive, I must survive, what's my plan? But also the people, mainly they were the people who were like, I've got no way to, to survive this. And they laughed every day. Really interesting. So laughter produces, has these sort of multiple functions, really, where it... It acts as a coping mechanism. It bonds us to others. It makes us more creative. And so then the thing that becomes, you know, I've had bosses say to me, now is not the time to be laughing around the office. And, you know, I would contend, no, the very opposite. This was the, you know, when things are bad, that is the time to be laughing in the office. Mm, absolutely. And and it's also, you know, when when things get stressful, when there's deadlines, when big solutions need to be you know had that's when you need time to think that's when you need to switch off that's when you need to sleep more eat better laugh more so it's all counter you know these uh these american movies of the 90s wall street businessmen you know it's it's, exactly. it's always the opposite exactly exactly so time is unfortunately always going way too fast in the, in the <laughs> podcast and i'm really enjoying our conversation before we go to the last question, Bruce, may I ask you um, to tell uh, listeners where they can find the book? I guess it's in all on all the Amazons, but also where they could, you know, read more about your work or, or get in touch with you. Yeah. So the book is out on um, 
um, Blue Monday, which is sort of a, a, an English, a British day, uh, which is sort of regarded as the most miserable day of the year. So that's the, the 21st of January. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book's, the book's out then. Um, it's, it's available on sort of Audible or, or on in, in bookshops. Um, but, you know, if people uh, are just more interested in the idea of work and improving work, then, uh, then I have my own podcast, which is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. But from that podcast... I made like an eight-point manifesto, an eight, an eight-point uh, sort of way to improve work, and some of those are in the book. Some of them I've sort of adapted and changed. But the intention of that was to create eight ways to try to improve the basics of work, and that was, you know, it's things like turning the notifications off on your phone, which might seem almost unrelated to work culture. But what you find is that most people are in a state of, of mild exhaustion about their jobs. And if they turn the notifications off on their phone, it, what it tends to do, the, the people who did that experiment, they, they asked people to turn notifications off on their phone. And uh, the, the people who did it, half of the people who did it, were still doing it two years later. So it's one of the most powerful interventions that any of us can do. Um, and I think the, the objective is really sort of to try and reduce that sense of exhaustion you've got about your job by, by doing it. So, um, yeah, the, the manifesto inc- includes eight things like that where you can and you'll find that just by searching new work manifesto. Great. Now, coming to the last question, and because this is the last podcast I'm recording in 2018, and everybody is feverishly preparing their 2019 uh, New Year's resolutions. So once this podcast out, and if it's not too late for people, what would you advise to people who are interested in improving the work culture of their organizations? If you could just give one advice. Yeah, I mean, um, the if, if you're going to sort of stage one intervention, one of the secrets is to get uh, psychological safety, so to build psychological safety. And... Um, I found a, a member of the elite British military um, told, told me about something called a hot debrief. So at the end of every day's action and intervention, they just have a hot debrief. They stand together at the end of the day, um, very much like a, a stand-up meeting that people have when they, they run a scrum methodology. They have a hot debrief, and and the, the leader there models this by by saying uh, what he's done wrong personally. So, you know, it's a, a sort of a great way for him to demonstrate it's okay to admit when something's gone wrong. And I think that's, you know, uh, I've, I've tried to describe it in 30 seconds there, but, you know, it gives you a perspective of some of the things that you can do. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Bruce. I really, really enjoyed again our conversation, as always. And <laughs> I wish you really the best of success with the book. And, and that really it reaches many, many people and they start implementing these strategies because the world needs to hear your work. Thank you so much. Wonderful to chat to you.